0: All right, Mike, you're the ad guy. You got any interesting um, ideas for how we could communicate what's going on with this?
1: Do you love the Enneagram so much you wish that you could wear it? Well, now you can with Enneagram t-shirts from the (laughs) list.
2: That is a ridiculous thing.
0: (laughs) All right, we got our t-shirts finally.
1: And by finally, we did an Enneagram episode in August of 2016, Yeah, and we started talking about doing t-shirts shortly after that, and people emailed and asked for t-shirts. And I look back at my tweets, I even told someone in September 2016, we'd have t-shirts shortly, <laughs> t-shirts shortly. So it
0: depends on their, <laughs> their perception of time
1: passing. Maybe they're like, yeah, that's about right. This is about right. That's on liturgist time. We have these pretty amazing t-shirts now for the Enneagram. They're really
0: great. It's worth the wait.
1: It's definitely worth the wait.
0: Because when we started, the ideas weren't as good as these. And now they're really good. We should just tell them a little bit. So every number's got your t-shirt. Yes. And a couple different designs, actually.
1: Yeah, we've got like your just basic Enneagram logo, which is more of like, I guess, a liturgist theme shirt. And then each shirt has uh, like a slogan design. We should read some of them. So, the ones your shirt says, this shirt could be better because so you're a one. So much to perform. So much to perform.
0: Twos it says, do you need my shirt? <laughs>
1: I like that one. That was my favorite. I yeah. thought of Lisa literally to make yeah, that picture. I'm
0: um, Threes. I am a three.
1: You got a picture of a spotlight.
0: Yeah, and then does this shirt make me look successful?
1: The four is a unicorn. I'm artistic and creative. I love making music. I love being a. My core motivation. Project. I wish this yeah. shirt was the only one cool. like it. Oh uh, yeah. And
0: I'm a five.
1: Fives. We got a camera, and it says I am the observer.
0: Six. Is that the honey badger? That's
1: a badger. That's a honey badger.
0: <laughs> My friends have a shirt like this. And it's like a, a badger wearing a shirt with a thumbs up. <laughs>
1: The sixes have highly reviewed the six shirt. Every six has I it? know has, has said they really like it. Yeah. Okay. Good.
0: It. Sevens.
3: Happy life. Happy, happy
1: life.
0: It's apparently our most popular so far in sales because so it's a real party shirt. <laughs> it's like a big party <laughs> hat. Party hat. Of so I'm having the time of my life in this shirt. You'll notice they're real meta. They're
1: life. self-referential shirts. <laughs>
3: seven is so much fun you can keep all
4: your pain out sight. i'm an enneagram
3: eight
1: the eight a giant bold print is make way for me and my shirt
0: <laughs> and then the nine which i can't wait for us to get ours mike because i hope i see you wearing this one this shirt is comfy it's a television with a Showing a slice of pizza on the television.
1: (laughs) That's a a very autobiographical shirt, I'll be honest. It's very, very autobiographical.
0: Yeah, and then there's a couple other uh, t-shirt designs in there. Coffee, then meditation. And then one that says wipe the shame off. Wipe
1: the shame off is my favorite of all the shirts. That's pretty good. That was uh, just a liturgist thing.
0: So, uh, we had zero t-shirts on our website. And now we've got... (laughs) 27?
1: Very lit, very <laughs> liturgist style. Uh, yeah, we do nothing. Then we go real hard.
0: <laughs> but we just wanted to let you know about it because a lot of us are having a lot of fun with these t-shirts and uh, you should join us.
1: And a lot of you have asked us about t-shirts since, you know, episode one <laughs>
3: of the podcast.
1: <laughs> so this is a, a long, long requested thing. And we had a lot of fun doing it.
0: It'll be a good conversation starter for you to evangelize about the Enneagram. If
1: you like. Because <laughs> we know you've, there are some real Enneagram evangelists really are. in this
0: <laughs>
3: in <the> world. <laughs> uh,
0: and speaking of the Enneagram, we have released our videos.
1: Oh my gosh. I love them so much. First, Annie Diamond is incredible she's amazing she's an instagram teacher that we asked to join us on the videos and it, it really is like like a whole season of the liturgist podcast but filmed it was a lot it was i mean it's, it's dense <laughs> it's dense yeah um I, you know i i was honestly when we st- started thinking about online video courses i was like that's not us it's not who we are but there's ideas that just don't fit in a podcast, but you know, really shouldn't be a book either. And this is something we're doing for that kind of middle space. And man, am I thrilled with how that Enneagram course came out. And people, uh, now that the courses are out and we're hearing from people who've gone through them, pretty rave reviews from folks as well. Good.
0: The meditation course was great too.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And I'm almost sad the meditation course is out though. Because the meta comments from people before it came out, just when they had access to an empty video card, were exceptional. Really, really good. So someone said, like, I've completed this entire course in five seconds. And, you know, I'll be Buddha by mid-afternoon. Like, I, at first I was disappointed by the lack of content. And then I realized there is no content. <laughs> it's just, I love you people so much. Oh, man.
0: Yeah, they're both, they're both if, if, if either of those topics interest you, they're a good dive into it. Pretty deep dive. Like the Enneagram ones, we don't even bother trying to explain the, the types from a surface level because we already did that in the podcast. So we like dive deeper. So we encourage you at the beginning to like listen to the podcast first. So you have a, at least a basic knowledge of the nine types. And then we really get get in to some of the deep structures that, and Annie is like a, an Enneagram ninja. She was able to guide us through some cool places.
1: And in the same way, the meditation course, we kind of assume you've already are basically familiar with meditation uh, through our episode on the podcast. And so we go much deeper into, you know, practice and schools of thought about meditation. And um, I go really, really, really deep into postures. and. <laughs>
0: I go into mind states, and we talk about we talk about chakras, we talk about yoga, we talk about centering prayer, we talk about like ten different kinds of meditation. It's a
1: pretty broad spectrum. It's a East meets West <laughs> meditation course.
0: Yeah, I've never seen anything like it, and I'm really excited about it. Proud of it.
1: So, so what's really fun is you can find uh, the t-shirts. You can find both courses, including a bundle of the two, where you can save some cash. By going to shop.theliturgist.com
0: All right. Well, let's get to the episode. Hey, everybody. Michael Gunger here. Apart from scoring the Liturgist's podcast, I am a composer that does scoring work here in Los Angeles for films, commercials, uh, even a trailer for the Justice League movie last year that I was excited about. As a composer, it is my job to essentially support and even create the emotion of a scene using music. And do you know where I learned to do that? Well, my friend, I will tell you. Church altar calls.
3: Let your kingdom come. Let your
0: will be Seriously, 15 years of accompanying charismatic preachers as they taught me how music not just supports but fundamentally affects the message watch i'll show you there was once a man named bob he lived in a house he had a job bob had a job okay now let's listen to that same clip with some music There was once a man named Bob He lived in a house He had a job Bob had a job Okay, now one more time, same clip Second option for music There was once a man named Bob lived in a house. He had a job. Bob had a job. See? What by itself is an emotionless abstraction, a bland series of words, suddenly takes on color and depth. There's suddenly more to the words than just words. It's almost like putting music to something gives it a sort of body to live in. As I look back at my time as a church musician and worship leader, I wonder, was that what I was doing? Was I acting as some sort of conduit between the abstraction of mind and the physicality of body? It's hard to even imagine the faith of my childhood without the music. What's a revival without singing or dancing? What does theology matter if you don't have a way of feeling those ideas in your body? Isn't this the whole point of liturgy? Turning lifeless sets of words into song and chant. Candles, stained glass, outreaches, bread and wine. Turning word into flesh. As I've said before Art is the body's pronunciation of the soul I still think that's true So much of our culture and religions In mainstream society are based in A sort of disembodied sterility That we inherited from the enlightenment But this is a reduction of reality When you shrink reality like this ideas become paramount and the embodiment the feeling of those ideas becomes secondary i grew up you know trying to use music to um, give my disembodied religion a place to exist a place to be lived out but it wasn't enough i've come to see that there is a better way to live better way to practice spirituality that doesn't have to be so disembodied phantasmic but instead involves the whole person engulfs the whole person spirit soul and body today we are talking about embodiment today's hosts will be science mike william matthews hillary mcbride and myself welcome to the liturgist podcast everybody How can a human body have a sense of disembodiment? How does that even make sense,
3: folks?
4: (laughs) Hmm. I think the key is in what you said, the sense of disembodiment, that we are always embodied. We can't exist without being in our bodies, but we can sense living more in our heads or in our thoughts based on how our existence has been constructed through the language we use, things like body-mind-split the flesh is bad, the spirit's good, all of those things, emotions, emotions are weak, they're weakness, uh, they're feminine, they're going to leave you out of control. So we learn to leave our bodies and there are obviously neuroanatomical correlates to that. But I think we've, we exist in a culture which actually encourage us to be disembodied. It encourages us to leave the felt sense of being who we are as being more than just thoughts, rationality, insights?
1: There's this thing called the mind-body problem. Um, and it's it's the very strange phenomenon, to unpack the original question, that our observer in some way feels separate from our physical existence, which is rather strange if you think about it. Uh, and I've always correlated that to my understanding in neuroscience today that the prefrontal cortex is a lying bastard. And <laughs> that you have this part of the brain that is so good at lying that we thought its primary function was executive function, like the brain's CEO or president. But as we've learned more about neuroanatomy and had higher resolution and larger sample size brain imaging studies, what we found is that the prefrontal cortex's primary role may actually be the narrator of your life. It's telling the story from everything that happens in your body as processed by the systems in your brain.
0: It's like a marketing executive.
1: It's like a marketing executive telling, and it, and it takes credit for everything. Oh, I did that. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> that was I, that was my call. I chose to do that. I chose to do that, and that cr- starts creating a sense of separateness from the body. And this is exacerbated in Western civilization, especially post Enlightenment, because what we've found is that the the very kinds of Prioritizing rational and analytical thinking that Hillary talked about, especially at the expense of the emotions, rebiases the function of the entire human brain toward the left hemisphere and more and more towards the prefrontal cortex. I think a lot of the problems we have with embodiment comes down to elevating a part of the brain that already wants to be the superstar of consciousness and indeed arguably may be the seat of the conscious experience and encouraging everyone as much as possible to behave in a way that is rational and analytical and therefore literally creates pathways through the brain where more and more processing is coordinated through that little liar we call the prefrontal cortex
4: it's hard for us to have a conversation about embodiment without also talking about consciousness Because the phenomenological argument is that consciousness actually lives in the body and that we've been told a story that the consciousness that we experience is only located in our cerebral activity and our thoughts. Consciousness has always been in our body, but the cultural narrative that we've been sold and how language impacts our lived experience actually causes us to be disembodied. We should also probably have a conversation about how trauma impacts embodiment as well. Trauma often is felt and seen and lived in the body, particularly psychological trauma. So overwhelming experience, fear and terror, someone feeling like their life is going to be over or they're in a serious situation of threat, particularly sexual trauma is really located viscerally and in the genital region often. And so there are these massive amounts of nerve endings in our viscera and in our gener- genitals that make it really acute the sensation of trauma that we're feeling in our body. So you can imagine that if people have lived through trauma, either microaggressions that create a sense of unsafety in their culture or something as, as overwhelming and terrorizing as a rape, that it would be really unsafe to stay in the body, that the body would become a place that's not, that's not fun to be in. And what's fascinating about trauma is that when a certain part of our brain determines that we're in overwhelming terror, we're going to get an endogenous opioid release. And that endogenous opioid release is responsible for the shutoff of the communication between our thalamus and our cortex. So we've got these almost two functioning brains at the same time. We've got our thought life, but then our body stays distinct and separate, and they're not talking to each other, which can lead us to feel dissociated or disembodied. So there's an important conversation to have here about what it's like to live in a culture where there's pervasive sexual trauma around the corner for, Mm -hmm. you know, half the population just waiting and wondering. The Me Too movement, I really identified that, that sexual trauma is everywhere. And what we know with trauma is that just the threat of it, especially if you've experienced it before, is enough for you to feel unsafe and on guard and hypervigilant. So I think we've got a cultural narrative, which devalues lived and felt body experience and privileges cognitive and cerebral activity as a, the seat of our consciousness. But then we've also got a culture which makes it really unsafe for us to live in our bodies and tells us that our bodies are bad or are dangerous for us.
2: I've heard it said that the body keeps score. Yeah. Um, and I know different spiritual teachers have talked about the pain body. Um, does the body store memories?
4: Absolutely. How yeah. how does
2: the body do that? Well, I
4: think what we want to be careful of is to say that the body and the mind are not distinct from each other and the body and the brain are not distinct from each other. And so yeah. your brain is recording and your brain body system is inc- recording implicit memory always, which is your felt sense memory that you don't necessarily have a timestamp to. And your implicit memory often has a physiological component to it. So a recording of the sensations in your viscera when you're thinking about something. So people often have body memories of things that they don't have time stamps to, particularly when they happen between three or four years old, when the hippocampus isn't myelinated enough to record time or temporal components to memories. So you can sometimes ask people, "What's what was your childhood like? And they could say... I don't know, but I get this kind of sad feeling in my body and I want to kind of fold in on myself. And that would be a body memory or an implicit memory of something that we don't really have a timestamp to.
1: for any of our listeners who uh, may not be quite as nerdy as you and I, (laughs) what might we mean by myelination?
4: Myelination is when a neuron is wrapped in a fatty tissue that allows the messages between neurons to be sent more quickly. Mm
0: -hmm. There's obviously all these physiological things Mm -hmm. happening in the body and the mind. To a Mm -hmm. practical person that is just thinking of like, what does it feel like? Mm -hmm. To be like, William and I are fives on the Enneagram, uh, fives live in their head. That's the kind of the main thing. Huh, uh, what'd you fives.
2: say? <laughs> I was in my head. Sorry. i trying to come back.
0: But it's a funny thing. Even when, we were, when I was learning about the Enneagram, we just did an Enneagram video series and we talked about the different centers of intelligence, um, head, heart, and gut for different types of people. And at first I pushed back on even using that as a framework to talk about the Enneagram. I was like, it, those are just, they're metaphors. We obviously all have bodies and brains and they're all functioning. What do we even mean? It's just a metaphor. But just, I think the feeling of living in your head, the more we got into it, I find value in the metaphor. The feeling of living in one's head, as a five, I know in my experience, it, it is a constriction of reality. It is a narrowing of reality into an abstract set of thoughts, Words rather than a full bodied experience, so I remember when I met this guy who who told me about m- my type of person being a sort of, typically disembodied or person lives in their head kind of person, and he recommended like get a hot tub, and I did <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love hot, he's like, do you like you like you like hot water or something like, oh yeah, that's my that's my jam so like I got a hot tub he's like, go on walks, find exercise, find ways of getting in your body, which Mm -hmm. meant to me, like, don't constrict your experience to the mental life in that way, meaning like just abstractions of reality, but actually directly experiencing reality as a human person with a human body. It
4: seems that it's hard for people to do that sometimes though, because there's a moral judgment about being in the body too. Mm -hmm. Like it's Weak or Mm. uncontrollable or less valuable in some way than the thought life. Yeah, dirty. Whereas thought life. The flesh is sinful.
2: That's what I was taught. Right.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas thought life is seen to be more pure, perhaps more abstract, but actually more trustworthy. Yeah. And so I noticed that when working with people who live in their head, there actually seems to be fear and disgust about coming more into the body or just a sense that that would be less valuable.
0: Where do you guys think that comes from? I mean, some of it, obviously, uh, we inherited with our religion. I inherited a lot of that with my religion. It was taught to me, and sure, it's gnostically infused religion. But it's
2: by gnostic. What do you
0: mean? The Gnostics. It was very. It was about that. Like the the body is dirty. The spirit is the pure. The mind. The and even it goes back to even maybe before that, like Platonic thought in some ways, as like this form. Behind and the substance and the form, there's there's something behind reality um, that is more like the pure ideal form of it. And reality is seen as sort of this gross less than expression matter, physical matter is kind of like less than spirit. And that a lot of that seemed to get inherited into early Christianity and and especially when it came to like sexuality gender. And some of that just was seen as like dirty, less than the flesh, calling it the flesh rather than the spirits separating those two things. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a big part of my religion as when I think about even like discipleship growing up, what was it? It was kind of avoiding the passions of the flesh. It was not having sex, not um, drinking and doing drugs and partying and having pleasure orgies Um, but instead to like move into the, the pure disciplined Mm -hmm. mind of the spirit and the mind of Christ. And, you know, it was very clean,
1: but that is the West, right? I mean, that's the Gnostics lost and, and any of their writings, you know, didn't survive as, as being canonized in scripture, but the early church was still Hellenized. Yeah. And the church almost died out uh, but you know then became the religion of Empire through Constantine. Mm-hmm. so now you have this combination of greco-roman philosophy now informed by you know pharmaceutical moralism mm. kind of amplified both ways and then becoming like the the normative or dominant way of thinking for a hemisphere's worth of people largely through physical conquest. And violence. Hmm. And that's what I what I mean when I said earlier, like that that in the West we have a bias towards the less hemisphere and towards the prefrontal cortex, because it is endemic not just to one denomination of Christianity, but all of Christianity hmm. and all post-Christian Western ideologies like secularism or atheism. All of these things de-emphasize uh, the value of the lived experience. And and for good reason, in some ways, your embodied sort of intuitive experience is pretty terrible at particle physics. <laughs> uh, I don't want people, you know, deciding their visceral or, or emotional reaction to
0: that's how flat earthers, right? Exactly, that's not yeah.
1: great. But our embodied experience uh, is great at telling us about other people, it's great at telling, it's like, on paper. A lot of times, I do things that make a lot of sense based on. Uh, timelines and deadlines, and I ignore my body saying too much, too much, too much, which means I am am frighteningly frequently physically incapacitated from trying to do too much in a certain period of time. Uh, And my body has the intelligence to say, don't do that, but because I am a good Westerner and a good Protestant, I ignore my body and I toil, and in doing so, find a sense of self-worth and value. And uh, it is an absolute plague in Western culture.
0: Mm. Fascinating when you think about how colonialism and the violence you're talking about is related to disembodiment, even the idea of manifest destiny yeah. being this sort of pure ideal that they had that could exist in the mind, that it could exist as this truth that that somehow transcended bodily lived reality... So that they could do whatever they wanted to people's bodies and make it fit to the ideal
2: mind form. Yeah. Mm. I was listening to this lecture by uh, an African-American scholar. I believe his name is Dr. Jenkins, Uh, but he was at Fuller recently and he preached this sermon about the malformation of ideal of colonialism and how the idea that we need to bring creation and thus these savages to a type of maturity. Though, unfortunately, the maturity is a a deformed maturity because what it did was it separated humans from their body and from the land. And so he argues that particularly African spiritualities, you know, um, South American spiritualities were more connected to the land or they saw themselves as connected to the land. So they would never want to rape the land or steal its resources and how colonialism with its with its Christianity brought a type of abstraction from the body and, and also then those religions were squashed and those religions were treated as savage religions and, and they were wiped out and, um, and not valued as, uh, I don't know, contributing to our civilization and how we view the other. And so I, I think about that often with colonialism and how we've been robbed of a rich inheritance from Eastern religions as well as uh, indigenous religions that center us back in the body.
1: Well, I think you see like a struggle among Westerners to try to reclaim some connection to mm-hmm. the physical and the visceral. I think that's why we love yoga. Mm-hmm. I think that's why white popular culture is uh, so frequently plunders the riches of African American culture mm-hmm. is because of its power to speak to the body. I, and I know, like in my own life, I've constantly struggled to try to get more in touch with the part of my body that isn't my brain. You know, I have a real tendency to view. My body as this very useful suitcase for moving my brain around. I, you know, it's kind of funny. I've had. I'm a pretty clumsy person. Uh, I tend to to be injured more frequently than average, and my approach has always been like, if I break a bone, no big deal, it will mend. And the only time I've had like a reckoning with my identity and self worth was a brain injury. I'm mm. like, well, that's important. I can't let my brain get injured. And I remember right after the accident thinking, like, why couldn't I have just lost my legs? Mm. Which, if you think about it, I, I, it's a relatively minor brain injury I had. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to think that, like, losing my legs would be less traumatic <laughs> than having a couple of brain bleeds and vestibular system damage. But uh, it's, the, it's that degree to which I am centered around the cognitive as my primary way of functioning, mm. And why I am so often deeply confused by my emotional reactions mm-hmm. to things, not just confused, <laughs> but actively troubled. Yeah. You know?
4: Well, emotions live in the body, that's where they're situated. They're not these things that exist solely in our intellect, they actually have physiological signatures that go along with each mm. of them. And so it's really hard to do emotional awareness, emotional regulation. It's hard to feel with someone and do empathy when we are disconnected from our body, because emotions, particularly the feeling of other people's emotions, lives in our own body as well.
0: Are we going to talk about the insula?
4: Oh, Whoa, oh my!
3: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we all worked
2: up. Hillary loves it. The insular, is that what insula is all this insula or insular insula. cortex. Insula, yeah. 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 I'm oh. a cingulate man myself.
1: <laughs> c- <you're a> c-
4: <laughs> so the insula and the insular cortex in the brain is a structure or a set of structures that helps us understand how we can feel sensations in our body and then make sense of them intellectually and do that thing that we're talking about, which is the sense, the felt sense of something in our body. And what's fascinating is that the insula tends to be implicated in things like disgust, So uh, this visceral response that there's something bacterial that we don't want to ingest. It's protective in its function. But the insula is also implicated in things Mm. like how we do empathy with other people because it accesses or it's, it's part of the group of structures that are responsible for mirror neuron response. When we see someone else's emotions and we feel them in ourselves, like watching a video and seeing someone get punched in the gut and then going, oh right? Almost imagining that it's happening to yourself. And so insula and insular cortex are really responsible for some of the things that we're talking about here today and are valid and brain-based structures. So they live upstairs in our head, but help us make sense of what we're sensing in our body and feeling in our body.
2: I wonder if, if that then is the role of good religion would be to help bring a language to that experience of what's going on in the brain and the body. You know, especially in ancient world context, we didn't have that language right. or we didn't understand the brain.
4: Well, I think about good religion is actually helping us be more fully alive. Yeah. And if you're only accessing one dimension of human experience, then how can you experience the fullness of life? So there is so much life and vitality as it's situated in the body, even things like sensation, feeling, touch, having a taste of something in your mouth, having energy course through your body in response to hearing something that someone says and you noticing in that moment that that feels really good. There is more to experience than just thinking about ideas and actually letting those ideas resonate in your body and tell you something about what feels good and who you
0: are. Hmm. You, told, you told us in the hot tub last night mm. as we were being collectively embodied oh, yes. uh, about in, in therapy, like sometimes walking people through emotions that they don't mm-hmm. really know how to experience and actually showing them how that exists in their body, like yeah. the throat. Yeah, You're saying the heaviness in the throat or yeah. the, as equivalent to sadness. Or how, can you right. talk about that yeah, a little yeah. Bit? Yeah.
4: So people who experience dysregulation of affect or the inability to feel their emotions and do something constructive with their emotions and haven't actually been given permission to do that relationally, often struggle with feeling like emotions come up really strong or they can't get in touch with them. And the consequences of that being irritability or disconnection from people or from themselves or a reduced sense of self or suffering that they don't know how to respond to. So in therapy, because I'm connected to people, because I care about them, I'm really trying to get to understand their experience. And I'm also trying to stay connected to myself and embodied. I often feel in my body what they could be or are feeling in their body. But for people who were never taught, they often have difficulty accessing that. And when that comes in extreme forms, we call that alexithymia, which is the inability to feel or name emotions and often the inability to experience them. It can become quite extreme for people. And then there are obvious consequences to falling in love or having appropriate relationships or communication when you can't access emotions. So what happens when people are saying something is that they might have this emotive expression like tears coming to their eyes when they're talking about a sad story and I'll say, what do you notice in your body when you feel that? And they might say, Gosh, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I feel anything. And I'll say, Well, you have tears in your eyes. I'm wondering if that can help us understand more about what this experience is or was like for you. And for people who've lived in their head or are cut off from their emotions or their body, might have difficulty even locating what the sensation is in the body. So because I'm hooked up to them neurologically and really attuned to them, I can use my body as the way to help point them in the direction of what that feeling is like. So I'll say I can see that you're sad and when you are sad, I feel sad because I care about you and that sadness shows up for me in the constriction of my throat and then I'm wanting to pull inwards with my body and almost curl in on myself. But also this desire to reach out and connect to you at the same time because your sadness isn't too big for me. I can feel it in my body but I also want to be connected to you. So as I'm telling you that just bring some attention to your throat and your body and tell me if you can feel any of that constriction in your throat or that wanting to pull inward on yourself. And people will often say, wow, yeah, I can feel it there. I wouldn't have known where to even start, but now that you're saying that, I can sense that. And so then we learn together how to feel. Because mm. emotion, emotion lives in the body, but emotion is actually a dyadic experience before it's an individual
2: experience. And in a dyadic meaning two person in a
4: dyad, there's two of us. So you actually learn through your attachment relationships, how to sense your feelings, how to stay with your body while you're feeling. But again, like I was saying, if an experience is too overwhelming, because that overwhelmingness is felt in your body, often we want to leave our bodies. And so we try to not feel, we try to get away from the feeling because it's too much and we haven't been shown how to regulate that or Mm. stay with that. So the process of therapy is helping to bring people back into their bodies to have a full experience of emotions so that then they can make choices about what they do in any situation, given all of the information that's accessible to them.
2: Explain this to me then. If I experience trauma or really painful, negative emotions, I have a hard time crying. Like I Mm -hmm. won't cry. Mm But if I'm watching a really emotional episode of Grey's Anatomy, mm-hmm. I'm sitting on my couch. Or
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> before Grey's, it was Parenthood, or you know, or one of those right. shows. And I'm like, not every episode, but it has to be a real emotional one. You know, it's probably like one a season mm-hmm. <laughs> for me personally. And I'm like, Oh Bailey, Doctor Bailey, Oh Jesus, you know, like. And I'm like, whatever. And I'm going, like, What is wrong with me?
4: <laughs> what is wrong with me because I'm crying this much?
2: Well, not because I'm crying this much, but it's funny for me. I've always. And maybe because it's my fiveness, I somehow weirdly can open my emotions up to a story like that mm-hmm. versus the the thing that's happening right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Often. I can feel it in front of me, but it won't bring tears to my eyes. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not that emotionally cold. <laughs> like, I I feel. Yeah. Uh, but I do have a hard time showing that emotion mm-hmm. in, like, in my life. Mm-hmm. But then you get me on the couch by myself watching Grey's Anatomy, you know, some, and it's like... Yeah. It comes. I don't know what yeah. that is. And when you were talking about that, I just thought about that.
4: Yeah. Emotion is meant to signal what's going on for us to our community of a belonging to tell them what we need. So, emotion actually has a social function. It's pretty hard to feel okay feeling if we've been told at some point that we're not allowed to do that. And so, we can take in the messages that keep us defended against feeling our own emotion for ourselves as a way of protecting ourselves from experiencing the consequences of having someone see us cry and feel judged or shamed by them. And so often what happens, particularly in our significant attachment relationships is that we've been told at some point, don't do that, or don't cry about that, or that's not okay, or we don't do that here. And so we actually have permission to cry for a story on TV because it doesn't involve us naming our pain and it doesn't ask anyone else to comfort us. Mm-hmm. We're just living and experiencing the pain that we have inside vicariously through a, a TV show. Mm-hmm. So there's a relational component to this too. This isn't just you having a hard time crying for your own story. It's what has crying for your own story meant for you in the context of your primary relationships? And when has that been allowed or not allowed? And how do we help you learn that it's okay to access all parts of you while being seen and connected to somebody else?
2: Mm-hmm. I've heard a a quote oftentimes in the black community, we can be afraid to show emotions or afraid to cry because I think it might've been in the James Baldwin uh, documentary, I'm not your Negro. He might've been talking about that uh, at like Martin Luther King's funeral because he said, oh, that's exactly what it is. He said, if I cry, the tears will never stop. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there is this collective sense of if I allow this to happen too much or if I give myself permission to feel in this community. Then we'll never stop crying. The grief will never and maybe that's a lie or that's you know. I hear
4: that lots from people who have deep wells of pain that haven't ever been given the safe place and the permission to dip into that and then come out. Yeah. And so we're afraid that if we go in, we'll stay in and we won't know how to get out of it. Yeah. And then the other the context of that though is if we cry, then nothing will get done and we won't be productive and we Mm. can't participate in society. And so there's There's something about the diminishment of emotionality or the diminishment of affect that makes it seem like it would be useless or a waste of time to go into it and to continue to cry. We also can't grieve something and be sad about it if we're in the middle of the trauma. Mm. We have to be through it to be able to look back and be sad and and prove to ourselves and, and know with certainty that it's over. And I think Although the civil rights movement was really successful in moving things forward, the struggle in the black community is not over. Mm. There yeah. is consistent racism and devaluation of people based on their ethnic identity all over the place. Yeah. And so are we ready to grieve? No way. It's still going. There's still work that needs to be done. Wow. It's hard to have a conversation about embodiment without also talking about consciousness. And we tend to think of philosophy as being a really cognitive activity. It's something that's situated in our thought life. And yet there's been a stream of philosophy, an existential stream, particularly phenomenology, which has actually led us back to the body to help us understand what it's like to be fully human. And Merleau-Ponty, who was a French philosopher, talked about these two different versions of the body, saying that we both are a body and that we have a body. But that we think about often the body is this thing that we have.
0: Like you were saying, Mike, it's the suitcase. Even by our language, saying my body.
4: Exactly. People yeah. saying, oh, my body is not performing today or frick, my body is so, you know, it just won't do what it. Why can't it heal? Why can't it get better? And, and we also are our body though. And that's an important component of embodiment and the phenomenology of embodiment is to realize that our lived body shapes our experience of ourself. Our lived body influences what it means to be a self and to be human. For example, the experiences that you've had, William, as a black man, shape your sense of identity. And those would be completely different if your brain was plopped into somebody else's body. How people treat you, the words that they use, how those different than how... People might speak to me as a white woman. All of those things shape your lived experience of yourself, including, you know, ableism and ageism. What can I do that I can't, couldn't have done in the past? What can I not do that other people can do? And how does that shape who I believe myself to be? So Merleau Ponty says, we have a body, but we also are a body. That there is no me without my body. Mm. That me doesn't exist outside of my my lived physiological experience or anywhere or anywhere
3: sure.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and the body reminds us that we are intersubjective the the mind can be disconnected and often isolated from the world around us and in fact we can see that in such extremes we would call those you know certain kinds of mental disorders that the mind is so disconnected from reality but it's really hard for us to be isolated and alone when we live in a body, because the body reminds us that we have needs like food and connection. We feel close to someone when they touch us. And so the body reminds us that we have limits, but also access to other people and needs for other people.
2: Mm -hmm. I think Rene Girard has this phrase, he calls it interdividual. Cool. I love that phrase, just to even... Bring us back into the body, but also the body's connection to other bodies. Yes, um, yeah. That we are not individual, but inter.
4: Interdividual. Yeah. That's what he said, yeah. Why does this matter politically, the conversation about embodiment?
1: So the the disembodiment of Western culture allows and perpetuates systemic violence and oppression. But if you look at cultures that are uh, more embodied, or if you look at people groups that haven't had contact with modern civilization, they're actually statistically more likely to die at the hands of a fellow homo sapien. One thing I struggle with a lot is kind of like the endemic state of both the kind of Western post-Enlightenment human experience or a more visceral, more embodied uh, experience is an extreme tendency to work towards the needs of the self and those closest to the self at the expense of others. That happens most readily in uncontacted people groups through extreme tribalism, literally like our small cluster of 50 to 150 individuals versus the world as a mentality. And Western civilization allows that to scale up much larger, uh, but then also allows all kinds of strange philosophically guided atrocities like manifest destiny and genocide and smallpox blankets and really strange things that would be unimaginable to other cultures. But I think there's a, there's a, a necessity here to use different modes of thinking to interrogate each other, so to allow our humanity and our empathy to interrogate our actions when our philosophy takes us to strange places, Mm. but also to allow our philosophy and our ethics to check our more visceral reactions to other people that can also lead to destruction and to violence. Uh, Something that has stuck with me since our shame episode was the idea that how would the world be different if Donald Trump was in touch with his pain Mm. That's an idea that hasn't left me Mm. at all Mm -hmm. since then. And I've been thinking more and more about the ways in which Donald Trump and I are similar in our disembodiment. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the kind of person, I had a pretty painful childhood because of bullying, which I've discussed at length on the show. And don't worry, folks, I'm not going to tell a story that makes you pull over your car because you're crying right now. Just uh, I would say that I've had enough painful experiences that I definitely learned to distance my physical sensation and my emotions as a means of survival. I kind of learned to do biofeedback, to to analyze my body's state, to actively subvert and work against it, and to uh, intellectualize problems, which created incredible relief because if you're analyzing your emotional states, you really stop experiencing them. And over time, that became internalized as a self-policing disgust because if i could be disgusted by my tears faster than they could form i wouldn't cry and i wouldn't give bullies mm-hmm. the ammunition to mm-hmm. keep brutalizing me right but that created that survival adaptation created something pretty unhealthy and that i've always had kind of an emotions switch i can just switch it off any feelings to the point that like as an adult i would go to the funeral for a family member or something really traumatic would happen, I could only cry as a single sob. I would just like sob out loud and immediately stop, not not intentionally, mm-hmm. just this internalized behavior. And so I had to go to therapy, kind of back to something you were saying, William, about not being able to cry, because I couldn't cry ever. And my therapist worked with me for several months on crying. Mm. So the first thing that happened is I could cry at movies. And then I started crying at like commercials. And then I started to cry about things that affected me. And then I cried all the time. <coughs> like, like ceaseless crying. That's where I am today. <laughs> Let's just cry. It's exciting. I enjoy it. But I learned to not judge sadness Mm -hmm. as being negative Mm -hmm. or weak. And that led to a period in my life that not only do I experience a greater sense of emotional completeness or satisfaction, but that has made me a a better friend, a better father and a better husband. Uh, And also is the animating energy behind all my public work. The longer I do this, the more I am I'm not a balance between Bill Nye and Fred Rogers. I'm mostly Mr. Rogers. That's what people come for. <laughs> is like, uh, I'm not judging them and I'm feeling their pain, right? The pervasive backdrop of our modern politic is a disgust with perceived weakness, a disgust with softness, a lack of self-sufficiency. And so our body politic Uh, is about (laughs) avoiding the body and not acknowledging the needs of the body and therefore creates selection pressures in which those that we elect into positions of leadership don't demonstrate their humanity, which creates a model so that as people seek to go for those positions themselves, they do the same. And, well, no wonder we have detached... Mm -hmm coolly disembodied discussions whether or not it's a good idea to make sure people in poverty can eat. (laughs) That's only possible in a state of systemic disembodied.
2: Wow. I
4: think what I wanted to say to that, too, is you can't... the, The more you avoid emotions, actually, the more they have control over you because your mechanisms of having to defend against them have to get... stronger Stronger and stronger and stronger and And so actually one of the ways to make sense of emotion
0: (laughs) Mike just did the mind exploding (laughs) gesture
4: one of the ways to actually not feel controlled by emotion is to know how to lean into it and what to do both individually and relationally to meet the needs that emerge with each emotion The second thing I want to say is you can't numb selectively. You can't numb the sadness without also numbing joy. Mm. You can't numb fear without also numbing vitality and aliveness and passion. And all of those are situated in the body. And so we go to these great lengths to try to feel in control of emotions, but we are the ones who suffer existentially. And our loved ones are the ones who suffer when we can't feel close to them because we can't feel.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: I cry all the time, yeah. but half of that is I hear my daughter playing her ukulele and right. I cry. Mm. Yeah. Or I drive to Michael's house on a sunny day in Los Angeles and I cry. Yeah. And those are very wonderful tears mm-hmm. that I would never like I would never have experienced yeah. until I learned to cry from grief. Yeah. Mm.
4: We have evidence that when we're feeling deeply and we're crying tears associated that with that, that we're actually releasing toxins. And there's some good evidence to suggest that that actually can be harmful and cause disease in rodents. Crying isn't something The tears can... Human tears
0: can cause, can cause disease, disease If rodents. they drink those tears? Yeah. What? Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? I think it was done in Vancouver, actually. But there's enough toxicity that when you cry, not just... Tears of happiness, but these really deep, what Gordon Neufeld calls tears of futility, where there's a sense of being overwhelmed and I can't take it anymore, that those tears have enough toxicity in them that they could harm mice. So if you think about the repression of tears and how much toxicity is in your body, when you're holding that intensity from your pain and your sadness and it's not getting released, you're actually causing illness to yourself. So it's a health intervention for us to be able to make peace with our tears and be able to release them. It's like sneezing. Your body is saying, there's something in my airways that I want out. And as much as we like to sometimes repress a sneeze, we don't have shame or guilt or judgment about a sneeze. We might not want to do it in the middle of a performance or at a funeral or something. But we give ourselves permission to let something out. And if we could do that with tears, if we could do that with our sadness, I would love to know what the implications that that had on a variety of health issues. We know autoimmune issues and certain kinds of cancers have correlation with repressed traumas.
3: Mm.
4: So can can we cry, can we release those things and see that actually is a health intervention for us?
0: And then I think about spiritual, I hate saying progress, but <laughs> spiritual discipleship or however you interpret spiritual growth. And for me in my spiritual journey, I, you know, I've been a big meditator over the last eight years, I guess, as a, as a five that tends to have these grand ideals and and live in the head. I think so much of my practice for so many years was about getting my head clear about getting my mental constructs big enough when i talk about god is it a big enough mental construct even ideas like oneness for a while i think there there was still some attachment in there to it being a clean beautiful idea as opposed to a bodily experience i always wanted it to become a bodily experience but in my meditation i think there was often a a movement outwards. I I would look out and try to feel my oneness with everything, feel my oneness with the stars and the sun and other people. And, and then a shift last year, towards the end of of last year for me, I started doing a bunch of more meditations that were body focused and I had done mindfulness and stuff, but this was, I don't know why this was specifically, it was, it was still tailored towards oneness and non-duality, but it was, going inwards, um, these series of meditations that I was doing and practicing a lot and moving into my body in that same way that I tried to like, let go to my union with out there, actually let go to my union within myself. Mm. It's funny. Like that's the, one of the last things that I did. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like the, the last, how funny that one of the last things I could feel union with it was easier for me to feel union with a sunset than my own feet. (laughs) So, but those embodiment meditations were a huge new step for me and, and actually made my union with the sunset richer and more fully experienced. It's not just an idea. It's not just a clear emptiness, but a, a fully embodied union with all that is and how much of the time is our bodies are like the last frontier for spiritual development. It's so easy to like put our, to take care of the widows and the orphans and, and out there to get our work done in the world. However, our religion pushes us and often do we like forget that our bodies are the very temples of the spirit that that happens through. I
2: think that, I think that's the message of the incarnation. Yeah. Is that flesh and blood are good, and this whole story of a God who would become human puts us squarely back in embodiment and into the wholeness of of being and I love Richard Rohr because he says, uh, the incarnation was the redemption (laughs) and he frames it, you know, he starts there. He goes, it wasn't the cross. It ended there, but it was, it was this, it was the incarnation, God becoming fully human. He was letting us know it was okay to be human and it was okay to be in your body, especially how disrespected the body is by us. Like we disrespect especially ancient world culture and how they continually disrespected the body, ultimately even to killing Jesus's body. Um, but that was the message that flesh and blood are good. And, and I think the whole communion thing too is Paul uh, missed that one. Paul missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Paul just focused on other things. Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think Paul got it too. Cause he, he, his supreme revelation, right. Was that, uh, the new temple was the human body. Yes. That, that we are like Christ in you, the hope of glory that, that this, this frame, though it's, it's, Decaying in a lot of ways, that this was the glory that to be embodied in this moment in history and time is worth it all, uh, at least when I look at the Christian message, I think that is the theme that I focus on the most, and I've always I think focused on because I saw that as the most hopeful mm. and especially for somebody that's detached right It's like, ah, I need to be embodied I need the 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 bread and the wine, I need the the flesh and the blood because I want to abstract it all away.
0: Yeah, I mean, even externalizing it into that. Is it harder to see the communion wafer in the wine as the body of Christ than it is to see your own genitals as the body of Christ? Mm.
1: You couldn't have engineered a better sentence to cause people <laughs> a strange mix of <laughs> contemplation and profound discomfort. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's what I try to do. <laughs> man.
2: I'm, I'm really enamored, too, by the whole notion of the cosmic Christ as well, because here it is, this whole, all of creation is the embodiment of God. And, you know, the rivers, the seas, the ocean, the mountains, the stars, the cosmos, that it's, uh, that this is God's dwelling and God's enfleshment. Like if Christ is the head, then we are the body. Like this whole, this metaphor coming, bringing back to us that we have a body, we are in a body and that we are part of another greater body like you know using the ken Wilber analogy of you know holes and parts like hollands and you know that that this is a part in that we're parts and holes i know science mike doesn't he just <laughs> he just nodded his head like <laughs> ken wilbur ken Wilber. <laughs> oh no we got two <laughs> <in> the- <laughs> i like oh, i like wilbur <laughs> <laughs> I like Ken Wilber. I like Theory of Everything and Brief History of Everything. I love those books. Uh, but even that, that analogy of it, you know, points to me back to the cosmic Christ, uh, that that the Christ is the the energy force that enlivened the human body of Jesus and therefore is of everything. Some would even say that that's the same thing Buddha was talking about. Amen. And when I say someone, I meant Michael Gungor. <laughs> 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 him alone, only him alone. No.
1: What do you think disembodiment plays in the strange combination of touch-averse and sexually predatory mm. touch that we have in our culture? I've, I've, I've seen studies wow. that effectively humans as social primates crave and need frequent touch to be balanced and healthy but we're afraid to touch each other. When we do, we tend to do so in exploitive ways. Mm-hmm. I've actually seen research that links a lack of touch in the West, and especially in America, to things like incidents of mass violence, the sense of alienation required yeah. for someone to feel it's not just enough to end your life, but you need to end other lives as you do so. Yeah. What role is that playing, mm-hmm. and how can re- can can reclaiming embodiment also help us to reclaim? healthy touch and mutual touch.
3: Mm.
4: I think that being disembodied with a constant threat of sexual predatory touch is a survival strategy. Mm. If people are going to grab my body on the bus just because I'm a woman and that's going to be threatening and unsafe and scary for me, what choice do I have if that's inevitable but to leave my body so that I don't have to feel the pain or the threat of that? So I think that disembodiment is a survival strategy, kind of like dissociation to get away from things that feel threatening but inevitable Mm. and that we need to make it safe to be in the bodies that we're in, make it safe for other people to be in their bodies so that we can all experience the fullness of life and safety so that our brains can work properly. We know that when we're feeling unsafe that... The parts of our brain that are making the choices about what to do and what needs to happen uh, tend to move away from conscious, intentional, and present thought towards reactivity and life-preserving, impulsive reactions. I think that there's probably a pretty serious consequence on our, the fabric of our social relationships if we're having to leave our bodies to keep ourselves and other people safe.
0: I wonder if that also plays a part in even the people that are responsible for the non loving, non healthy touch people that are, and I don't say this as a way to like excuse any behavior or justify it or anything, but I wonder how much disembodiment is at the heart of somebody who doesn't know how to respect someone else's boundaries. Mm -hmm. How at the heart of them, no. Well,
4: and impulse control, and yeah, but if so,
1: it's yeah. all yeah. one cycle and yeah. one system. Yeah. yeah. So I'm yeah. saying, like,
0: a person that doesn't have a healthy relationship with their own body, yeah, that feels present and loving of their own body, mm-hmm. would they be more likely to move into a, a dangerous cycle and a violent cycle that that they would not if they don't know how to respect what is their own body? How how could they respect someone else's right. body?
4: Yeah. Yeah. And be
0: fully embodied in their own body they're flailing out reaching out and causing havoc mm-hmm. around them
4: yeah i would say that it's definitely one component of psychopathology and mm. unhealthy and non prosocial behavior but among other things yeah yeah in a world that's constantly objectifying women's bodies in particular and and increasingly so men's bodies to be embodied is a political act to not participate in my own disembodiment by only viewing myself as an object from the outside, but to see that my body is me and to take up space in my own body and to refuse to disappear in my body, to really conform to the patriarchal construction of femininity, that is a political act of resistance, to stay embodied and to believe that my body is good and that it deserves to take up space and that I don't need to apologize for the things that I feel or sense in my body.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: I think we saw that in Black Lives Matter really strong. Was this uh, radical embodiment of, of of blackness that looked like f- black feminists taking their shirts off <laughs> in the street and protesting uh, as a sign of like disrespect and saying our bodies have been disrespected and it's disrespectful for us to be naked in the street so let's do it and I I always saw those images as such a beautiful message of. My life matters, my body matters, especially talking about police brutality and the devaluing of life uh, to have people who, I don't know, would reflect that back on culture. And I could see how harsh that looked to a lot of people and how the disgust comes up and the the shame and and all the emotions that come up when those images are flying through Twitter (laughs) and the periscopes and it's going live and you're seeing, you know, like people with sagging pants or, you know, like shirts off and just protesting and i don't know if that speaks to the state of where we're at politically where it's this radical because of the disrespect is that is that radical
4: yeah the body is the site of oppression and so the body can be our opportunity to resist and to re-engage politically to to dismiss or dismantle the oppression Mm. by being fully embodied and by owning that and not apologizing for the space that we take up or the color of our skin or our level of ability or our size. All of those and the ownership of those and the inner consent to enjoy and be fully embodied in those is a resistance to the disembodying and to the objectification and the oppression of the body.
2: Mm. Power to the people then. (laughs)
4: Dear body, I'm sorry, and I love you. Dear body, I'm sorry for telling so many lies about you. I called you ugly, a waste of space, just that, and just this. I reduced you down and used words with you I would never use with others. I told myself and others stories about you that were not true, and I did not honor how sacred you really are. I'm sorry for all the times I've hurt you, Both on the outside and inside. I've starved you, scraped you, plucked, pulled, cut, and burned you. I scrubbed you too hard in the shower. I filled you with food and then made you empty yourself. I've celebrated when there was less of you and screamed at you when I thought there was even just a quarter inch more of you where there shouldn't be. You never asked for this, you never deserved it. I'm sorry for the ways I've neglected and ignored you. You told me so many times. This isn't safe, or this feels good, or screamed at me, listen to me. But I silenced you. I covered up your voice with distractions and the promise that maybe I would love you, that maybe I would love me if you just stopped telling me things. I'm sorry for how I've kept you stuck and small when you wanted to expand and be free and wild. I sat there trying to be good, but it cost you. I told you we couldn't climb the tree. Instead, we would sit with our legs crossed. I made you think that you were better if you behaved and didn't challenge anyone's ideas of what it meant to be a woman. I'm sorry for how I believed what other people said about you. They said you were so many things. They called the beautiful and life-giving parts of you bad and horrible names, and I let them. I said nothing, and sometimes I laughed. I'm sorry for blaming you for holding all the feelings I didn't know how to feel. You have been so good at telling me when I'm in danger or when I'm alive or full of joy, but the hard things were too scary, and just to get away from the feelings, I tried to make you go away, to be invisible, to shut you up. I'm sorry for putting you down just to fit in with others. It seems that other people felt safer being around me if I told them that I hated you, but I let you down. I'm sorry for making you an object to use and be used, And I'm sorry I felt better for a while when I let people use you. I really thought I would be more lovable. And when you told me you didn't like it, I didn't listen. I'm sorry I didn't know how to protect you from a world which told us both that you were for someone else's pleasure. Not quite enough of this, too much of that, bad, ugly, broken, a thing, a puppet, not wearing enough, the best thing about me, or dangerous. And I'm sorry for hating you when you did nothing wrong. And I love you for staying with me, for never really leaving me, even though I have tried to leave you. You are there, always, and as long as I am there, you are there, here. We are together and we can and will never be apart. I love you for the ways you let me experience life, through adventure, through taste and smell and sound. Without you, I would not know joy. Without you, I would not even be alive. I used to think my mind was safe and you were the one that was unsafe but now I know my thoughts told me lies, but you never have. I love you for allowing me to love others, to hold close my dear ones, to make love, to grasp a hand, to wipe the tear away from another's cheek. It is through you that I can show and feel love and know what being connected really means. I love you for helping me move, taking me from here to there, fast and slow, with intention and sometimes without even knowing it. Together, we have traveled the world and we see it all. You will help me appreciate others and the uniqueness and beauty that each of us are. I love you for introducing me to time. No one else will take the journey of life with me all the way from the beginning to end. As you change, I will remember what we have been through together. When you show lines and marks, it will be the storybook of what I have lived, reminding me daily of all the times I have laughed, chopped apples carelessly fallen from the swing set, and squinted to see the beautiful day under a bright sky. Skin, oh skin, you tell me about what it means to be wise, and joints, you remind me that we are not permanent. But I refuse to shame you because you cannot do what you used to. I love you for teaching me how to rest. You remind me to care for myself and have deepened my understanding of what it means to be present and still. In teaching me how to rest, you have taught me how to need... And in needing, I have allowed others to love me and give me parts of themselves. Through rest, I understand the rhythms of life. I understand that humility is a spiritual discipline, and I do not have to do everything just to be loved. I love you for helping me touch, myself, others, the softest petal on the flower outside the front door and sand against the heel of my foot and the neck of my lover. I love you for carrying life inside, You have always had life inside of you, even before you were born. Each month I'm reminded of this. I plan my week, what I will wear, what activities I do or not, because of this life reminder that you bring to my awareness. And oh, how this reminds me that we are connected to those who come before us and after us. And you remind me always that I'm not alone. Even when I am alone, we are together. I love you for being a miracle on the inside. There is so much to you I will never understand, why you and I wrestle sometimes in the morning about when to begin the day, or at night, why you make that clicking noise, sometimes and not others, and why you seem to like it when I feed you some things. You are a mystery to me, and instead of frustration now I feel full of wonder and appreciation because I love you, just as you are. how do you know when you're embodied? Hmm. Tell us a story about when you felt embodied or how do you become more embodied?
1: Just imagine like, is there a room that would have more difficulty with that question? <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. This exact like, room. Hillary, who are you talking to? <laughs> That's right. like, oh. You think we're experts yeah. in this? Uh... <laughs> I feel embodied now. Mm,
4: what tells you that?
0: I literally can feel my body. (laughs) I'm not caught in a mental loop. Yeah. To me, when I'm disembodied, I'm caught in narrative. I'm caught in a string of abstraction of thought.
4: Your awareness, your sense is distributed into the sensation in your body and not just in your head. Yes. Yeah.
2: Music and dance brings me back to embodiment. Mm. I feel, I feel present and centered when I allow myself to let go Mm -hmm. and to feel rhythms to move my body and to enjoy that. Like there's an an enjoyment and maybe it's, I don't know, it's the adrenaline, it's the whatever, but I feel most alive when I'm singing, performing or dancing. Like I feel most embodied uh, in that moment. I think music saved my life in that regard. And I think a lot of musicians feel that way in terms of that release, that music, gives you that release of your sadness, of your pain, of your even your joy, a release for all of that. And you can what you know, through playing and singing, you can let go of everything that feels locked up on the inside of you and it gives it like a approved channel <laughs> to be released. Yeah. Uh and, and one that it can be resonated with from other people and it's that energy is coming back to you and you're giving that out. And
0: that's interesting seeing art as a form of embodiment yeah even though you might be imagining with your mind while you're painting or whatever it's it's giving it physicality it's giving these ideas a place in the world yep
2: writing's Uh, that way too uh songwriting piece writing like to give language to the inner chaos of the soul is one of the ways in which i feel we help bring order to it and bring stability to it all Uh,
1: gastroenteritis makes me feel very embodied, <laughs> Yeah, deeply embodied. I had no narrative, uh, the last two days. I had no <laughs> abstraction. I was simply a continuous stream of sensation and instinctual response um. to sensation. Occasionally I could boot up a higher loop, uh, t- for sanitation rituals to try to keep other people <laughs> in my house right. from getting sick. But I was deeply embodied and that reminded me why I used to love long distance running so much Mm. was because about 10 miles into a run, I never went into my head. Mm. It was, I just stayed in my body the Mm -hmm. whole time. I am not a naturally embodied person. One of the things I look for in meditation is embodiment, but the Mm. times in my life, I'm the most aware of my body are the times in which I am reaching its limitations
0: Mm. What about you, Hillary?
4: Well, I was going to say in response to that, we've got a few phenomenologists, Max Van Manen and Merleau-Ponty, who would say that for those of us who live in a disembodied life, it is actually illness or pain that reminds us that we are a body hmm. and reminds us of the limits of ourself and life and existence. And so it's pain or illness that reminds us that we feel. Hmm. We take the body for granted until we can't ignore it anymore. I think for me, I lived my, my whole life disembodied up until a certain point. Maybe not my whole life, but particularly um, as a child, it's really easy to stay embodied. We haven't learned to leave our bodies yet. So when people talk about freedom in the body, often they talk about these really youthful experiences. So running down the street and feeling like your legs are going so fast that you can't even keep up with them. And there's this flush in your chest on a summer's day when you're playing tag with a friend you're climbing a tree and it feels so good to feel your hands on the bark and know that you're grabbing onto the trunk. So these embodied experiences are often really youthful and early in our development. And then we learn to be disembodied and that was my experience. So my journey recently of becoming embodied has been to find moments both of movement and stillness and to locate sensation in my body and to track with that and to try and keep these dual tracks of awareness running at all times, that there's a thoughtfulness about the sensation while also a sensing of the sensation and doing that, especially while I'm in therapy Mm. or when I'm doing something that feels really joyful, to actually expand and savor that moment, to help my brain learn to attribute more resources to that sensation of joy or pleasure so that it takes up more mental activity and, and that I can go hang out there more often. So I've been taking in embodiment classes, which just really looks like, sometimes they're called authentic movement. This mm. totally free dance where you're giving your body over to music and mm. giving it over to the body of the earth and movement. And,
2: <laughs> Damn. Oh yes. I want to give my body over to the earth.
0: <laughs> like when you think about religion,
2: all of me loves all of earth. When you
0: think about religion and how much of our Western Yeah. Especially Protestant Christianity, for those that identify with that, is totally disembodied. Yeah. It's you go in and you listen to somebody talk. You sit in an uncomfortable wooden pew or some equivalent and listen to information spewed at you. And maybe there's a little bit of uh, grease for the gears with the music. At some point, so yes. they really let the let the words come in and have a clean, cleaner
2: slate.
4: That's white church. Though. Yeah, I
2: was like, speak for yourself. That's most
0: <laughs> Western church, I feel like.
2: Yeah, I, the, I I hear you. There can be a lot of speaking oriented, but but even in, you know, in black church, there is a participatory element to even the speaking. That it isn't purely I sit. Yeah, and it's more stumbling. embodied. Yeah, it's way <laughs> more embodied. Um, and actually, the audience is is crucial and necessary. Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, at least in in our context. And so, why I I partially agree with you in terms of that format. I think uh, Black Church reflects that very differently. Um, and it is far more embodied. With I mean, people will run in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> Just get up and wow, run. That's amazing. Yeah. Like or stand up and clap and yeah. shout or. Fall out, or, you know, like I've seen whole meetings derailed, like in the middle of a sermon yeah. <laughs> because the audience is like feeling what's happening or the spirit. And next thing you know, you know, it becomes something totally different. You know, that's what we would say. Oh, the spirit came and the spirit took, Oh, the church was good today. Spirit came and you know, we just, and the music and all of it. Like it's, I don't know, it's a celestial spiritual dance that happens in that.
0: I was kind of headed of that direction because we went, that's what we went a couple of weeks ago. We went to a black church and, that's a big part of the reason that I mm-hmm. wanted to take... We don't go to church. Our daughters are never in church, and I thought it eh, would maybe it'd be fun to give them a little church experience, but I didn't want it to be a disembodied <laughs> white church experience. So I took them to a black church, and it was great. Lucy was dancing all over the place. The lady behind us was like handing her cookies, so she was... In. <laughs> 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 we were the only... We saw, I think, we two white people there, and it was... It was amazing. We were we were looked at funny. Our family didn't total didn't belong. We told you actually. <laughs> like we looked like we felt like we didn't belong there and you're like you didn't.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't. Especially the one you went to. Yeah. I was <laughs> like I wouldn't have gone to that one, but <laughs> it was great. Oh, I loved it.
4: You didn't belong because your bodies tell different stories about yeah. what it's like to be human. Mm-hmm pretty hard to have an embodiment conversation without also talking about social oppression and the oppression of certain people groups based on the body, right? A classic example that's used in Neva Peran's work, she's a scholar out of U of T who researches embodiment as a health intervention, particularly as an eating disorder treatment intervention, talks about how if you've got a, a woman in Delhi, a South Asian woman who feels totally at home and like she's part of something and then comes to LA, maybe not LA, let's say something like Portland, Portland or Seattle. <laughs> and just because of not only the surrounding of place, but because her body looks different than other people's bodies gives her a felt sense of devalued or a lack of social power because her body tells a different story about what it means to be her and how that fits in with other people. So the three components of embodiment that create a sense of joyful embodiment are social power, critical thinking, and freedom in the body. So free physiological experiences. But can I think critically about the way that bodies are constructed socially and what has value or not? But then also, what kind of power do I have in my experiences around me based on the body that I live in? Mm. And simultaneously, you could have the opposite of these three things – which lead to a disembodied experience, which is the lack of social power, the inability to question and think critically about bodies, and then a corseted body experience. So if you think for women who've been told your whole life, sit with your legs crossed and don't speak unless spoken to. And the boys, they can go play out in the yard, but you can't. There's a restricted social, there's a restricted physiological experience of the body where it's corseted and pulled in, there isn't a felt sense of freedom and joyfulness in the body. But then there's also perhaps a a sense of compliance as a way of assuring social belonging, that this is not what we do here and that's not what you do. But then also the social power component to it. And perhaps she sees that the boys are given more opportunities in certain spheres than she is. And all of those, simply because of the body she's in, create a sense of disembodiment and fragmented embodiment, which lead to all sorts of mental health issues, but also existential suffering. If the body is us and the body has been something that's not been safe or good or valued or free, then how can we be free? It's wild
2: how those two experiences can situate next to each other like you can have the f- the feelings of disembodiment and then have avenues and outlets for embodiment and and how you can move seamlessly in and out of both experiences at least in our american context so even using the black church thing it's like yeah i can feel that in this setting but then once i get out of that setting i'm back into disembodiment again <laughs> in a lot of ways or and and i think like you explained the experience of being female uh, you can move in certain spaces where you do feel empowered socially and you can think critically, but then you move back into maybe you go into an education school system that says you can't do math <laughs> right. and bam, you're back into right. disembodiment um, yeah. and the push and pull that those have on us.
4: So to become more embodied, we need to become aware of when we lose our embodiment. So noticing, Mm. wow, I'm in church and I feel really embodied in this black church. And then I leave and all of a sudden the way that I walk changes and the way that I use my voice and the way that I move my arms and how I feel in my body in this moment, what kinds of things I'm aware of, my sensation, all of that, I lose that. And to become aware of the loss of embodiment, I think would be a preliminary step to retaining embodiment, noticing when we lose it, and then making choices to try and stay in the space of embodiment.
2: Mm. I think that is exactly what Beyonce is talking about in her song formation, yeah, like she did it at the Super Bowl a couple of years back, right, and it was she was in Black Panther uniform, but the whole song is her describing her lived experience of people saying I'm part of the Illuminati, obviously, I'm not those are haters, <laughs> you know, and then she talks about where she's from the the place she's from, then she talks about how she likes black men, she goes, you know, the nose, you know, like Jackson five nostrils, she's saying, uh she's talking about a live black experience, but also giving permission to black people to be who they are in public. And, and, you know, SNL did that whole skit like, Oh my God, Beyonce's black. We didn't know. Right. (laughs) 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 Like it became this whole like talking point of like, Oh, we never really saw her as a black artist. And then Uh she releases this song, you know, that, you know, has a, you know has a bit of the country and the ratchet and and it's very black and she's on on top of a police car that's sinking in in new orleans you know and and then you know the police officers with the little kid and like like all the images of the video mixed with the uh the lyrics of the song speak to this like okay now it's time to get in formation like now it's time to be embodied to be in the world to be present to ourselves and to Like and in, in the capitalist system, like now it's time to make that money. Like I just might be a black Bill Gates in the making, you know, she kind of says, and you know, like I work hard, I grind till I own it. And so even that messaging is, you know, in its own convoluted way is still a message of embodiment of like, be who you are, acknowledge yourself, acknowledge your culture, your pride, where you come from and your history and bring that into the world and what you like into the world and don't be disembodied. Like, that's what I hear. When I hear that song, that's, it puts me back in my body. Mm like music only can do. Uh, but also it's giving this other message too of like black subversion like hey subvert the system. You don't have to be like the system.
1: We need a second microphone for William for his claps. <laughs> <laughs> we need a clap Sorry, now. I got real black with the claps. Oh,
2: I, know. So I was like I was and you know that <laughs> so right. I mean when it's time to show up, we show up. Like <laughs> Black people have always demonstrated embodiment. White terror and the ever-present fear of it was inflicted on our bodies from the beginning and still has yet to relent. We, the descendants of slaves, those who were labeled property, have never been able to see ourselves as detached from the socioeconomic and political implications of our bodies. In this, we are defiant. Blackness, as a way of being, is a social and political act of resistance. The way black bodies move and sing, our unique rhythms of grace, that beautiful ease and swag by which all of our blackness breathes, the way black hair moves in the summer breeze, and the way our full lips and proud nostrils and varying thickness defies the status quo. We do not belong here, yet we are. Who we are and our being... Or how we be is not an abstracted notion of self, that shallow wisdom of man, but a bodily wisdom, similar only to that of a mother's intuition. Our vision for healing, integration, oneness, and unity, and wholeness in the face of plunder and trauma is what makes us strong and resilient and full of magic. What we know is this, to be alive is to inhabit the body. Every curve, nook, and crevice is sacred. Every wrinkle, vein, and organ is holy. Every hue and shade and melon is a mark of divinity. We are prophetic signs and terrifying wonders to every system of power that distorts the truth of our embodiment. Our ingenuity and cultural creativity breaks the mold at every turn. Whether we choose to reflect heteronormativity or queerness, we embody love in the alternative families we make for ourselves. Whether we choose to portray industry beauty standards or subvert them with our beads, braids, cornrows, locks, and natural hair choices, we still define culture and determine what's hot. We know our embodied lives make you uncomfortable and we refuse to apologize for that. Our resistance is resilience. So when you see us, take us all the way in. Take in these magical bodies, effortlessly dancing in between time and space, Take in our delightful interior complexities and wonderful paradoxes. Whether we kneel at a football game or protest shirtless in the street, or whether we're going in at church or at a salon concert, or whether we're just at a checkout line buying groceries or purchasing a subway ticket, I want you to see us. I want you to see us radically loving and affirming ourselves, our bodies and each other. And when you see us doing this, let it be a sign to you. For we're not here to subjugate you as your ancestors did to us. No, no, no. We are simply here to teach you the embodied truth of love, love of self, love of community, love of creation, love of God. And though there may be more trauma ahead for us, we always know that there will always be more embodiment and freedom for us. Our resistance is resilience.
4: So I gonna go we're gonna go dance.
2: Let's go in the living room and, t- and turn on the- Hey Alexa, play Beyonce. <laughs> I'm not
3: doing
2: too bad Lucy's not here. We can get She is here now. <laughs> oh she Woo! is Let's get if she's not asleep, let's She's probably not asleep yet. That's let's-, let's do a dance go party dance. with Lucy. Alright. She'll love it. See you cool.
1: later everybody. Peace. Well, that does it for our episode on embodiment, and we hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you'd like to connect with other people who've listened to this episode, you can go to liturgist.com slash podcast and find the episode called Embodiment And there's a comment section where you can discuss this episode with other listeners of the Liturgist podcast. If you'd like to connect with the people that produce the Liturgist podcast, as well as its hosts, you can do so on social media. Just uh, go to facebook.com slash the liturgist or search for at the liturgist on Twitter and Instagram.
0: We'd like to thank all of our patrons who make this show possible. If you're interested in the second podcast that Mike and I make called the liturgist conversations, otherwise known as the robot and the alien, uh, you can go to the com as well to find out how you can support this show get weekly meditations and all sorts of other bonus things that patrons get this show is produced by myself and greg nordine thanks to Corey pig for project management mike mccarg mike mccarg for being managing director
1: and we'll see you in two weeks on march 22nd for our next episode on body image which we are incredibly excited about think will be helpful to many of you. Thanks for listening, everyone.